following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Let's get into the message for this morning. I want to preach this morning out of Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. The title of the message is Marriage and the Resurrection. So if you have your Bibles, we'd invite you to turn there. Otherwise, you could follow with the text that's uh, displayed on the screen up here. And it reads, There came to him, speaking of Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush where he called the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Let's pray. Father, as we do worship here for a final time in the Keller Gym, and even looking back at some of those photos and Recalling the history, we are reminded of your great faithfulness to us as a church. And may that, looking backward and seeing your faithfulness, give us confidence for what lies ahead. We acknowledge that um, beyond just the moves and location, um, we've been on a journey as a church. At times, the turns in that road that we experienced were painful and uh, wounding to us. And yet, even in the midst of that pain, we look ahead to the great hope that we have of what you are still going to do in our midst as we seek you with all of our hearts. Now, as we turn to your word, as we've done so each Sunday, instruct us, let your word be like a light to our path. Help us to understand your will, your heart for us through your truth. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've seen that ever since Jesus entered Jerusalem, the religious leaders repeatedly tried setting these traps for Jesus, trying to catch him in his own words. At first, they tried to trap him with this issue of authority. By what authority do you cleanse this temple and teach so authoritatively as if you are somehow a representative of God? And, and he somehow was able to um, put it right back at them by asking about the authority, about the baptism of John the Baptist. 
And then later they sent spies to him who acted like innocent seekers. And through them they tested him again, saying, do we pay this tax to Caesar or not? And again, Jesus was able to thwart their efforts to trap him. And now it's the Sadducees' turn. Now, it's very tempting to lump all of these different groups you read about, about uh, teachers of the law and scribes and Pharisees or rabbis and chief priests and Sadducees, uh, pretty much to just lump them all in one big bucket as if they were all the same. But the truth is that all of these different groups were pretty different. And the Sadducees were probably the best example of this difference, particularly when compared with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You see, because after the Israelites returned from their captivity in Babylon and got back into Jerusalem and into Israel, these descendants of Zadok were given the special privilege of running the temple, this new temple that was built by Herod uh, even, and even the temple after Babylon. These descendants of Zadok were these Sadducees, these Sadducees. And what would happen is that, that remember some couple months ago, we looked at Jesus cleansing the temple. Huge revenue being generated by the sale of these animals for sacrifice and the commission from changing money at the temple. Basically, these Sadducees were the ones that were pocketing all of this money. And so they became extremely wealthy. And they became very politically powerful. In other words, you could sort of see them as the aristocracy in Israel in the days of Jesus. But perhaps the most important and interesting detail about these Sadducees is that they did not believe in the afterlife. Okay? They believed that this world is all that there was, that when you die, that's it. It's over. I think this is actually surprising to many of us because there's this automatic assumption that ancient people, all of them categorically, believed in an afterlife, in a heaven or hell, okay? And for the large part, that's true. But throughout history, there have always been these pockets of people that were just pure materialists, that believed that this life was all that there was. And these Sadducees were one of these such groups. And so out of this belief that there was no afterlife, that there was no resurrection, the Sadducees present Jesus with a riddle that the truth is they probably repeated to all of their enemies, all the people that opposed their belief that there was no afterlife, in an attempt to show how absurd the idea of a resurrection is. And they begin their riddle by pointing out a law of Moses, what's known more technically as the Leveret Laws, which basically states that if a man dies and leaves a widow and no children, then his surviving brother is obligated to marry his widow and bear her children so that his family line will not die with him. But out of the offspring that the brother gives, his descendants will go on. 
It's, it's right there in the law of Moses as not a suggestion, but a commandment. If you're the brother, you have to do this for your dead brother. So that's their starting point, and based on that law, they create this ridiculous scenario. And they say, Jesus, there was this guy, and he's married to this woman, but he dies. And so his brother does the dutiful thing, and he marries the widow in order to bear his dead brother some children. But before he could bear any children, he also dies. So then brother number two steps up and does the right thing. But he dies as well. No children. Brother number three steps up and also marries this woman, but also dies. Now by this point, brother number four must be thinking, do I really have to marry this woman? I I think the word black widow starts coming to mind, right? Something is wrong with this woman, but he does it. Brother number four. Brother number five. And finally, brother number six. Seven dead men, all (laughs) brothers. All of them have one thing in common. They married this poor widow. Okay? So, now, they ask, what happens in the resurrection, Jesus? Okay? To which brother is she married? The first all of them? Kind of creepy. Ladies' choice? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, but here's the point. As ridiculous as this scenario is, it actually works, at least in earth, because of the serial death of each one of these brothers, right? It's, it's still a viable scenario that can still make sense because at any given time, she only has one husband, okay? But this is the whole point of the Sadducees. You add the doctrine of the resurrection to the picture and it becomes an impossible situation that God created based on his own law for this tragic family, Okay? You can almost imagine the smug grins on the faces of the Sadducees as they ask Jesus this question. They probably, in truth, stumped a lot of their enemies, like the Pharisees and other Jews who believed in the resurrection with this riddle. If there really is a resurrection, what happens in heaven? Isn't it just one huge hot mess? And they probably figured that Jesus would have been speechless as well, like all the rabbis were. But Jesus wasn't left speechless. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, we find these words. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. You see, to the Jews, all the other teachers that they had taught like men who had gotten good theological degrees from good seminaries. They taught like men who read a lot of books. In fact, in those days when a rabbi wanted to claim greater weight of authority, the way that they would do it is they would quote another rabbi who was more famous than they were so that they would give more credence to what they were teaching. But what, what, what the commentary that is made in the gospel is, Jesus did not teach like that. 
He was unlike any of our other religious teachers in that he spoke like he really knew what he was talking about. Like he had personal experience and understanding of these spiritual truths that these other religious leaders only pretended to possess. And I think that's what's going on with these Sadducees. In his response, Jesus was in essence saying to the Sadducees, you think you're so clever with your silly little one bride and seven brothers story. But all it really reveals is how clueless you are about the next life. And he says with authority in verses 34 to 36, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. In other words, he's saying your whole absurd scenario is based on the assumption that our marriages cross over into the next life. But that's a false assumption because in heaven there is no marriage. Back almost 20 years ago in another election cycle, back in 1988, there was also a presidential race uh, between the first George Bush and Dukakis, right? And the two vice presidents that were running in that race were uh, this very seasoned, elderly statesman named Lloyd Benson and a young greenhorn senator named Dan Quayle. Okay? Now, Throughout that race, Quayle was constantly attacked for his lack of experience and being too young. And he got tired of these constant attacks. And so what he began to do in response to these accusations was to point out that he was like President John F. Kennedy, who was also accused of being too young and experienced in his day. And uh, so there was a vice presidential debate in 88 uh, between Benson and Quayle. And once again, over the course of this televised debate, uh, the question was asked, aren't you too young, Mr. Quayle, uh, too inexperienced to be a vice president of this country? And sure enough, as predictable as it was, once again, he compared himself with Jack, President Jack Kennedy. And hearing this, Lloyd Benson made what was to become now very famous words in response. Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. And then the audience erupted in the sustained applause and laughter that went on for like five, what felt like five minutes, you know? Um, I think that's the kind of response that Jesus is giving to these Sadducees. You guys are talking like you actually know something about life after death. But I came from there, okay? I came from heaven. You guys don't know the first thing about heaven because of the silly marriage riddle that you're proposing to everyone as if you're so sm- the smartest guys in the room refuting the resurrection. Jesus explains that because there is no more death in heaven, there is 
No more marriage. One of the main reasons for marriage is procreation, to make children, to give birth to the next generation. It's been often noted that the human race is just one generation away from extinction, right? If we do not bear children, humanity does not continue. But he says, in heaven, we're immortal. We don't need to bear children. And so that's one of the reasons that he gives that there is no more marriage. But he also goes on, and he, in verses 37 to 38, says, it's not only because I come from heaven and I know what it's like up there, and because I can tell you that because of our immortality, we don't need children, but he also says it's there in Scripture as well. And you Sadducees are denying the witness and the testimony of Scripture. And he says, when Moses talked about the God that he encountered at the burning bush, he basically speaks in the present tense that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so rightly, Jesus says, he is God of the living, not God of the dead. Now, throughout the history of the church, I would argue that there always have been people just like the Sadducees who have basically wanted to hold on to the ethical, moral teachings of Christianity but discard all of the supernatural elements, the fairy tale elements of the faith. But this is something categorically that Jesus did not give us as an option. A gospel without the resurrection renders Jesus' message utterly meaningless. This is a tact that C.S. Lewis grew very tired of, of saying Jesus is this great moral teacher, but Son of God, not so much. I don't think so. And in response to that phrase that was often used, Lewis writes, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. You see, all of his wisdom and his great moral teaching is so interwoven with claims like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. You see, the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. And the truth is, their life reflected that. For them, life was a desperate grab for all the power and all the money 
and all the fulfillment that you could get in this life. And the truth is, in that race, they won, didn't they? They won. After all, if this life is all that there is, who wouldn't feel that same desperation? It's why you would be an idiot. You would be a fool to de delay gratification, wouldn't you? What argument is there for delayed gratification? You would be a fool if you let others gain the upper hand intentionally at your expense to turn the other cheek to love your enemy. If you've got one shot in this life, and this life is all that there is, then the argument is pretty clear. Make the most of it. Reach as high as you can. Climb every mountain, right? And these are the mottos that the, Pharisee, that the Sadducees lived their lives by. To them, religion was only useful if it helped them get ahead in this life. And that's why the gospel that Jesus preached sounded much more like a threat to the Sadducees than an invitation. Now, let me say this. I'm guessing that for the majority of you sitting in this gym this morning, feel pretty unthreatened by this message that I'm preaching, okay? I think you're hearing everything that I'm saying and saying, yeah, those, those horrible Sadducees, right? Um, at least as far as your stated beliefs go, I'm guessing that not many are being challenged by the message this morning. It's like, you're preaching to the choir, brother. Preach it, man. Preach it. Yeah, I know those kind of people who say dumb things like, oh yeah, Jesus said some cool things, but I don't actually believe in that eternal life stuff. And you look at those people and you say, Haha, thank God I'm not like that. But here is the question that I think every one of us in this room this morning, regardless of what your stated beliefs are, has to wrestle with in light of what Jesus was teaching to the Sadducees that day. Is are you a closet Sadducee? Are you? Because here's the truth. Maybe underneath your stated beliefs about the afterlife, the truth is you also demonstrate a quiet desperation that is uncomfortably similar to those who don't believe in a heaven and a hell. Maybe the truth is you also feel the same urge to grab all that you can in this life. Because the truth is, you're not really sure what awaits you on the other side of this life. In other words, does your belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ cause you to live your life any differently than those who do not believe in an afterlife? Is there any real-world difference in the values that you embrace, in the goals that you set. Well, you could ask, what difference should belief in the resurrection make in my everyday life? Well, let's just look at the example that the Sadducees gave in marriage, the institution of marriage. How should your belief in the resurrection affect your view of your marriage? Okay, if you're married in this room. I would say this. 
If you don't believe there is an afterlife, I would say the same desperation that characterizes the rest of your lives will rule your marriage. In other words, if your husband or your wife doesn't give you the things that you long for out of your marriage, the truth that whether it's companionship, emotional or physical intimacy, sex, respect, think about it. You will feel devastated, won't you? Because you're like, this is my one shot, and it's blown in this messed up marriage. And out of that desperation, you're likely to try to manipulate your spouse in whatever way you can to try to get what you long for from them. But here is where the resurrection comes into the picture. Jesus says, you know what? Marriage is beautiful. It's great. It's wonderful. But it's temporary. It's temporary. Because actually, marriage is just a sign pointing to a greater reality of God's love for us that awaits us in heaven. And so this is what the resurrection speaks into our marriages is even in your greatest moments of joy and fulfillment in your marriage, by faith we come to understand that those are just glimpses of a much greater fulfillment that awaits us in heaven. Some of you may be really depressed in this room realizing that your husband or your wife won't be your husband or your wife. When you get to heaven. But the argument would be that just reveals how little you really understand about the resurrection. Of how the love between a husband and wife is only a shadow of the love we're going to experience from God when we see him face to face in heaven. You see, when we believe in the resurrection... We come to understand that marriage is only a temporary tool pointing to something much greater that is awaiting us. You know, in comparing the love between a husband and wife to Christ's love for the church, in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about husbands cleansing their wives. He says it like this in Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In other words, this is what Paul is saying is in the eternal perspective, God is using your marriage to make you holier and more like Jesus Christ. In other words, our marriages may be temporary, But the impact that it has on us and on our spouse can last for eternity. And I want you to think about the power that that truth can have on the way that you relate to your spouse. Think about when your spouse hurts you, doesn't give you what you want, betrays you. Rather than retaliating or being devastated by that occurrence, you can love them like Christ loves you. 
And through that process of learning how to love selflessly, God is not only changing your spouse, but he is changing you. Here is the truth. For some of us, the thought that marriage is temporary may actually be a relief rather than sadness. You mean this doesn't carry over to heaven? Well, that's not, it's okay, you know? (laughs) I mean, we can laugh about it, but here is the sad truth is, I think there are a lot of people that feel trapped in a difficult marriage. There are. But when we see even a difficult marriage through the lens of the resurrection, we can realize that God can accomplish his eternal purposes even in that difficult marriage. Because the ultimate goal is forming Christ in you and in your spouse. It's also this eternal perspective on marriage that enables Paul to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Paul says, I'm in that category. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul sounds almost flippant as he tells people, married, unmarried, it's all the same. If you stay single, if you're single and you want to stay single, go for it. If you can't control your urges, then marry. Why does Paul say it like this? Because unlike the prevailing view of marriage in his day, which basically said you actually are not a full-fledged adult until you get married and have kids, the biblical teaching is rather different. It says your marital status does not define your worth or identity. You are not less of a person if you never get married or if you once were married and lost your spouse. If you have Jesus, you have the reality of which marriage was only a sign pointing to that truth. I mean, I just want you to stop and reflect on how radical Christian living ought to be if we really believed in the resurrection. John Piper says, marriage is a momentary gift. It may last a lifetime or it may be be snatched away on the honeymoon. Either way, it is short. It may have many bright days or it may be covered with clouds. If we make secondary things primary, we will be embittered at the sorrows we must face. But if we set our face to make of marriage mainly what God designed it to be, no sorrows and no calamities can stand in our way. Every one of them will be not an obstacle to success, but a way to succeed. The beauty of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it. Very soon, the shadow will give way to reality. The partial will pass into the perfect. The foretaste will lead to the banquet. The troubled path will end in paradise. A hundred candlelit evenings will come to their consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this momentary marriage will be swallowed up by life. Christ will be all and in all. And the purpose of marriage will be complete. To that end, 
May God give us eyes to see what matters most in this life. May the Holy Spirit, whom he sends, make his crucified and risen son the supreme treasure of our lives. Brothers and sisters, this is the only hope for marriages in this life. Not five love languages or infinite hours of marriage counseling on how to communicate with one another. It is to say that Christ has died for me. And every day I learn how to die that death in my own life on behalf of someone else teaches me a little bit more about what God's love for me is really like. And you can apply this principle across the board. If we truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it would not only radically change our attitude in our marriages, but every aspect of our life. Our attitude toward our money and our careers and how we parent our children and even how we face dying or mourn our dead. I think if there's any place where the hallmark of a Christian ought to shine brightest, it is at a funeral. Amen? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. What Paul is telling the Thessalonian believers is even when you lose a loved one, your grief should not be like the grief of the world. But let your hope in this resurrection shine. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24 to 25, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. Let's pray. You know, um, church can be a great place to find community. It can be a great place to feel less lonely, feel like you belong to something, to feel like you've got a, a surrogate family. And there's, there's that whole community aspect of church that's just wonderful. And maybe the truth is for some of you, you know, you think, well, I think church is great because uh, I want my kids to have some ethical structure in their life, some moral teaching. So I'm glad that they could be part of this ICC children's ministry and get an upbringing. And, you know, that's great too. Your children can learn about God. But, you know, we don't do church for those reasons primarily, right? What we claim as followers of Jesus Christ is that 2,000 years ago, a man walked this earth and claimed to be the Son of God and died, but resurrected three days later. And in that resurrection is a foretaste of a resurrection promise to you and me, if we believe. And that resurrection ought to change everything. But perhaps one of the most distressing signs to me 
of a struggling church. It's a church that doesn't really seem to display this hope of a resurrection. Instead, we live lives of quiet desperation, just like the world. It's a mad grab to get all that you can and suck the marrow out of this life. Accrue as much wealth, experience as many experiences, and live with you at the center of it all for your pleasure and your fulfillment. The thought of turning the other cheek, of sacrificing generously for the needs of others, these things just seem too risky for the fortress you've built for yourself. Christ says, you know, if you really believe that this resurrection is coming, how differently you would live your lives. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 to 16, speaking of all these great men and women of faith who preceded us, says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. When the people of God truly believe in the resurrection that is to come, there is no brokenness that you can experience in this life that will utterly crush you because the hope that Jesus offers cannot be extinguished. And this is my prayer for you this morning is that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you would have as the anchor of your life that hope in Jesus Christ so that whatever setbacks and disappointments, whatever dreams that will go on in your life unfulfilled, Whatever hopes get dashed, there is still an ultimate hope that this world can never take away from you. And out of that flows a heart of joy and worship that will amaze this world and make them wonder, what is it inside of you that is different than me? Could you just pray for a moment and invite that work of the Spirit in your heart? Let me know that hope. Let me know that joy. Let's just pray that as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response and closing.